0: We have a better idea of where Jonathan VR will play for the Marlins, but is it going to matter? And we'll also dig into the importance of using tiers and understanding BABIP.
1: Like death and taxes, Dodger's good a Dodger. I have That's not had uh, 3 go throughs yet. It works great in a fantasy league. Three. I'm just glad mm. I am not at the dentist. Fantasy Baseball in 15 on The Athletic.
0: Welcome to Fantasy Baseball in 15 for Tuesday, February 18th. Al you're here with Derek Van Riper and uh, DVR. It's a bit of a slow news day, but in a way that works out for us because we've got a big deal on uh, The Athletic on the Fantasy section. It is Tears Tuesday, so I think there's no better time for us to talk about how we use Tears, if we use Tears. We've also got a really interesting uh, featured read from The Athletic that we can uh, dig into a little bit, but let's get into... The, I won't even say the big story, but the one story that I've really seen discussed uh, here on Tuesday. And that is Don Mattingly discussing where Jonathan VR is possibly going to play in the field. And uh, they're going to try him out in center field. So that we've got uh, a tweet here from uh, Craig Misch saying, if VR is in center field, that puts Brian Anderson back at third base. That would mean plenty of at-bats for Cooper in right field, Aguilar at first birdie is a backup outfielder and infielder should get plenty of the bats probably all premature but that's where we are today so if it's good enough for craig mish to talk about it's good enough for me (laughs) so uh dvr um well let's start with the the people who probably are not going to benefit from this alignment if this does stick it's clearly bad news for lewis brinson and bad news for brinson was one of my favorite bedtime stories growing up so (laughs) just putting that out there um. So yeah, uh, I mean, the outfield is going to be maybe a little bit different than what we thought it would be. Just a little, you know, few days, few weeks ago. Uh, does does this totally take Luce Brinson off your radar? Is this just wait and see?
1: I think it's really more of a wait and see. I think Brinson could coexist in the outfield with VR and end up in right field. I think that's a possibility for Lewis Brinson. Defensively, he adds more value in center field, so it's kind of curious that you take a guy that really hasn't played center field at the big league level and you put him out there over a possible good defender. But I think Jonathan VR is going to get the Nico Goodrum treatment. If you look at the way the Tigers move Goodrum all over the place. I think the Marlins are going to do something kind of like that this season. I think you'll see occasional starts at second base if Isan Diaz needs a day off. I don't think Miguel Rojas, even with that contract, is entrenched at shortstop. They have some other young players coming up. So I think VR is going to move to accommodate young talent when young talent is ready. And that includes Brinson. That includes Monty Harrison, too. I and mean, I can see mm-hmm. Monty Harrison emerging to be a regular in this outfield mix at some point this season. You know, Corey Dickerson looks like he's got the big side of platoon and left to begin the year is he going to finish the season in miami i would bet against that if i could so i just think there's a lot of moving yeah. parts in this roster and they're going to really try to lean into flexibility from jonathan vr to make him an everyday player but he might start at three or four different positions in any given week
0: you know i just realized too, dvrs we're talking about this uh, the the marlins they're they're kind of the old brewers
1: VR they Aguilar, are,
0: yeah. uh, uh, Garrett Cooper was in their system. Uh, so yeah, talking about a lot of ex brewers here, and um, you know, you raised an interesting thing too about the the youngsters coming up. So yeah, Monty Harrison, I would expect him to make an impact at some point this season, and Jazz Chisholm, maybe he'll be ready and he can come up and, as you said, move Miguel Rojas aside and become the regular at shortstop. That really can't be good for John Birdie. So already, if this alignment plays out whether it's an everyday thing or as you're suggesting and i think correctly so that maybe this is just a, a few times a week we see this sort of alignment uh that that could be tough news for birdie who i think people are really looking at as maybe a, a cheap steel source where do you think it makes sense to draft him given the the roster log jam that is building here
1: I think Birdie is very fringy, even in a deep mixed league. If it's draft and hold, I could see a case for it because kind of like VR, I think he's going to move around to get his playing time. I think he's one of those guys. He's a good story. Getting basically a half season to start a year ago and putting up decent numbers. I just don't think the Marlins really believe in it as something that's sustainable. He's older than you'd think as a guy that had to really grind it out in the minor leagues for a long time. So I just don't see much of a role for him as the season plays out. I think John Birdie is optimally used as a discount steals by in NL only formats. And and even there, I think you might be frustrated by how little he plays sometimes.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's unfortunate because I'm certainly among those that thought he'd have a lot more value and it's very early in spring training. So maybe this changes again, but right now that doesn't look like a good development for him. And uh, as we mentioned before, Garrett Cooper, Probably a boost for him as well. He was the very last person in my top 325 hitter rankings. So he's obviously going to get a, a boost up in the next uh, the next refresh there. But um, moving on to some other content from The Athletic, it is Tears Tuesday. So I've got hitter tiers on the site. We've got um, pitcher tiers as well. So uh, DVR, how much, if at all, do you rely on tiers on draft day? I mean, I'll just give away my position on this real quick and say that I I find them indispensable. They're one of the most important, if not the most important tools that I use, but there's all it's, it's a kind of a polarizing thing. Uh, There are people who are very adamantly anti tears. So where do you fall on the
1: spectrum? I mean, I use them. I, I don't think they're necessarily something that you have to have, but if you like them, use them. If you don't, then don't. I mean, I, I think they're important for me because I'm trying to make sure that I'm maxing out value of every roster spot in my active lineup. That's what everyone should be trying to do. And if there is a big drop in value at any point in the draft or at any point in the auction, I want to be aware of it. And for me, the easiest way to know where those drops are is to mark those gaps. So whether it's actually clustering everybody in detail within the tier or even just indicating where there's a noticeable drop in terms of skills and playing time. I think you can benefit from from having that there at least as a relative guideline as you're going through your roster construction.
0: Yeah, that's how they're really best used. Um, now I find that I don't necessarily use them for the first or second round, and I really abandon them. I uh, pro- abandoned them probably halfway or maybe a little more than halfway through the draft because at that point I've got my my value players that I'm looking at my my sleeper candidates. So, you know, I don't use, I certainly don't use them for the entirety of a draft. How about yourself? Um, You know, it sounds like you, again, you don't necessarily rely on them in lockstep with each pick, but is there a point where they, they become less important?
1: Yeah, I think the further into the draft or the further into an auction that you go, the less important they really are. I mean, I think you're trying to figure out within your foundation, am I able to get this category or that category from this position? Am I able to get enough playing time from this position I would say, after the first one hundred and fifty or two hundred players that you have ranked, it's kind of just open season at that point. Then you're just looking for specific patches, really, for the roster. Oh, I'm trying to find a corner infielder uh, who has a lot of power. I'm looking for a middle infielder who steals a lot of bases, even if he doesn't have a lot of power. You just have like these really niche things that you're looking for to round it out, but uh, I-, I think they become less important the further into the draft of the auction you go,
0: yeah, well, um you know another aspect in terms of managing your own tiers is whether or not it makes sense to stu- supplement them with ADP data. And this is something that really kind of stuck out to me as an issue to be dealt with when I was writing my tiers column because I created tables. So if you go check out the column, you see I created tables for each position, uh, listing the players by position as how I had them ranked demarcating the tiers as I went along, but also including the ADP because I found there were certain players that I valued much more or much less than the average drafter. I used NFBC, but obviously you could use, you know, any other source, ESPN, CBS, fan tracks, what have you. Um, and I, you know, there were these great disparities and I think that those two sets of data together give you some useful information because if you're, you know, you've got your own rankings and, and you see that you've got somebody as a third tier shortstop, but the consensus has them, you know, solidly or maybe low in, in the fourth tier. That's uh, you can maybe skip that third tier and and just you know target somebody that you have confidence in as as a value pick.
1: Yeah, I think using those tools in conjunction is is a better way to go. Uh, I think if you are much higher than the field on a player maybe splitting the difference between where you have that player projected or ranked and where the field has that player projected and ranked is a good way to still end up with the player that you like more than everybody else, but hopefully without overpaying by so much that you chew up all the room for potential profit.
0: Yeah. You know, that's a reality check as well in the way that you're describing it that if you're too high on a player, maybe you need to be a little bit influenced by the, the wisdom of the, the public and, you know, maybe same thing too, if you're a little bit low on a player. So splitting the difference, I think is a good way to go there. Uh, well, let's get a little bit earlier than we usually do in the show to discuss our featured read. Cause I actually want to sort of tangentially uh, pick apart uh, an aspect of this piece. It's a fantastic piece by uh, moving MLB averages. So that's obviously not the author's name, but that's uh, what he uh, goes by. And the piece is called, can you win with Ronald Acuna, Jacob deGrom and no top twenty picks, and it's an exercise in seeing what could, what kind of uh, roster you could put together if you traded your picks one through twenty for just those two players, Raul de Cunha and Jacob Degrom. And so, this first installment is about building a pitching staff. Uh, in the late rounds after you you forfeited your top 20 picks. And so I'm not going to give away the whole thing. You should just go out and read it. But I will give away one of the pitchers that he uh, writes about, and that's Jordan Lyles. And so I realized that DVR, this is really going off on a tangent here. I'm basically using this piece as an excuse to talk about something that's barely even related to it, but maybe not because one of the things that he discusses in regards to Jordan Lyles is how after he went, here we go again, to the Brewers uh, last season, he had much, much better results with Milwaukee, and a lot of it really had to do with his BABIP rate. The other peripherals didn't change that much, but he went from a very high, sort of unusually high that I think was around like 340 to one that was around, I want to say around 230 in that range. Um, I have come to find that the old conventional wisdom that if you see an extreme BABIP like that, whether it's the high one that Lyles had with Pittsburgh or the the low one with Milwaukee, that the the conventional wisdom was that's good or bad luck. And this is just purely um, just based on, on cases and not scientific at all. But it seems like if you dig into these extreme cases more often than not, there's a really good reason why they're extreme. So do you find yourself doing a little research whenever you see, a, a, a fluky looking high or low BABIP and, and digging in and seeing what's what's under the hood there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's sort of what BABIP 2.0 really is. It's, it's looking at the underlying numbers that might be causing a high or low number in that category and figuring out if the approach that brought a player to that point is actually sustainable or not. And I think with Lyles, because everything else looks so similar... I've inclined to say he's probably more like the pitcher that FIP suggests that he is. He had a 442 FIP with the Brewers in the second half last season, uh, even with 56 strikeouts and 58 and two-thirds innings. Uh, home runs are going to be a little bit of an issue for him. Fortunately, as we've talked about with the ballpark in Arlington, that should be a less hitter-friendly environment than it was before the stadium had a roof. The new stadium has a roof. It's going to be climate-controlled. Uh, it should cut home runs down uh, at least a little bit. So that bodes well. The other thing that bodes well for Lyles is that he's ended up in another organization that seems to have found a lot of success with mid-tier pitching on the open market the last couple of off-seasons. I mean, Lance Lynn reached a level that I don't think anybody would have expected in 2019. Mike Miner, for the first two years of his deal, after pitching as a reliever in Kansas City, has come back in the rotation and been better than expected as a starter. So... Part of it with Lyles is that I do kind of believe in Texas as an organization that's figured some things out on the pitching side, but you do have to set the appropriate expectations. If you look at the range of projections out there for Lyles, the most optimistic ERA that I see on his fan page comes from Derek Cardi's system, the bat, a 479 ERA with a 137 whip. Maybe he can do a little better than that, but for me, Lyles is the kind of guy that if you draft him because he liked the schedule early in the season or You think there might be something there. He has to be among your first pitchers cut in a mixed league if it's not working out the way you expect. I think if you get him around pick 300, it's okay. But I think we might be getting fooled a little bit by some really good luck during his late season run in Milwaukee. So what
0: are the sorts of things that help you make that determination? Because like I said, my personal experience, anecdotal as it is, is that it seems like the more I look into these things, I find a skill that's not obvious when you look at ERA or, or FIP. So what what are you looking for to see if, if a case like Lyles is legit or not?
1: So what I'd want to see in the case of, of Lyles is if he – with the move to Milwaukee, if he significantly altered his pitch mix, just you know, major difference in, in how he used existing pitches, or if he added something completely new to the equation, that could change the type of quality of contact that he's giving up, and then you'd see that result in a significantly lower Babip. So I just I look at what he was doing last season, and maybe it was a little bit of addition by subtraction, simplifying things a little bit that made him successful, but If you take what he was doing and normalize it a bit, I think the best case scenario for Jordan Lyles would probably be like a high three ZRA and probably a 130 whip over a full season, which in this environment is still pretty good. And it's a lot better than the projections I just threw out there. Uh, But that's the kind of thing I'm looking for. A a big change in pitch mix for a hitter. Uh, You might be looking for. Uh, changes to the batted ball profile—more uh, balls that are pulled, or more balls the opposite way, or more balls in the air—that can have an impact on on the BABIP as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's a lot to this, and it will certainly come up again. But uh, MLB moving uh, or moving MLB averages gave us the excuse to uh, <laughs> to give it a look uh, at this point. So uh, we'll we'll wrap it up for now, though, uh, for this episode of Fantasy Baseball in Fifteen. And if you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic, you can get 40% off a subscription at theathletic.com/slash baseball and fifteen. Everything that we write, everything that we do there is part of the subscription. And if you're enjoying this podcast on a platform that allows you to leave ratings and reviews, we would greatly appreciate it if you did that. So uh, we will thank you in advance. And for Derek Van Riper, I'm Al Melker, and we will be right back here on Wednesday.